you can empower the person about the knowledge you know about themselves how their brain works what's the best way to work but then you're still going to go into your workplace or you're going to go into your family environment and you still need to coexist among people because in order to thrive we need people we can't be on our own we're not an island and how well we can communicate also depends on how receptive our environment is and that's why it's so important that we do neurodiversity training in workplaces so that everyone then understands neurodiversity from a non-stigmatized and depathologized model so we can all learn to work together welcome to the connected leadership podcast hosted by andy lapata the show where andy and his guests Explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello, and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Laparta. Thank you very much for joining me. My guest today is someone that I've wanted to have on the podcast for quite a long time, since we both spoke at the same conference in November. I saw her talk, and I knew straight away that this was both a topic that I felt it was important to address on the podcast and the right person to discuss that topic with. It's a conversation that needs to be had because it impacts both how you can successfully lead a team in an organization and build relationships both with the people you lead and people around you. So my guest merits a a place on the podcast for her achievements alone. She's a very well-renowned scientist and a multi-award winning social entrepreneur who founded the organization ADHD Girls. And that might give you a clue as to the topic I'm talking about. She is herself autistic, dyspraxic, has ADHD and Tourette's. And the conversation I want to have is how we work with and embrace people with neurodiversity, not see neurodiversity as a condition to be managed or a challenge, but actually as an opportunity and something that we can understand a little bit more. So that's the goal of today's Connected Leadership podcast. And to join me to discuss that topic is Samantha Hugh. Sam, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Andy. It's so great to finally do this with you. I, I really appreciate the introduction too. Well, I appreciate you coming on. It's taken us a little while to get there, but I'm sure it's going to be worth the wait. And as I say, I think it's a really important conversation, particularly that repositioning away from seeing neurodiversity as a condition or as a problem and just understanding its different personalities effectively. So let's start with that. Tell us a little bit more about neurodiversity and how it shows up in different ways in different people. So the term neurodiversity was coined by an Australian sociologist called Judy Singer in the 1990s, and it refers to the diversity of the human mind. And just that alone, it shows that it includes all human on Earth. You know, it's the diversity, the differences in the way your brain functions, the way you think, learn, process information, behave, act and feel in the world. But the neurodiversity movement because of Judy's association, being someone who has autistic family members, being autistic herself, it is very much the association with the neurodiversity movement is about championing those who have been marginalized by society due to their brain differences. And as you know, society's understanding of neurodiversity has evolved. And this evolution of understanding was really based on what people understood and thought more about at any one time. And at the time, it was 
or autism and then dyslexia. And now we're talking more about ADHD and autism together. And then we know that actually there are so many neurodiverse experiences that describe our brain differences. And we really can't put a cap in what is neurodivergence and what isn't because anything that leads our brain to be neurologically different from the dominant group in the population is considered a neurodiverse experience. Do you think that as a society, we're moving forward with this? And I'm just thinking, just what you were saying made me think back, well, maybe a generation, two generations before I went to school, they would have tried to make me write with my different hand because I'm left-handed. And even going to school when I did in the 80s as a left-hander, I was forced to write with a fountain pen that smudged the whole page. People in the next generation to me who dyslexic were probably still suffering as a result and being classified as stupid. All of those things we understand now and they're considered mainstream. Dyslexia is considered mainstream, left, right-handed. It doesn't even come up in conversation now. So what progress have you seen with areas like autism, like ADHD and other neurodiverse personalities? Yeah, so it's also interesting that you said that. And that's why I talked about the evolution of understanding, because as a society, we tend to talk about things that over time, if more people talk about it and accept it, it becomes a culture. You know, I am also left-handed myself. And so I totally relate with what you said about having to do things different or feel that you were different because maybe people didn't really fully accept that you were left-handed. And as far as being undiagnosed neurodivergence flying under the radar, we've had to work out very quickly in our mind what to do in a given situation. That's why I said that we tend to mask a lot of our differences. And as a result, this is kind of made us think really quickly on our feet all the time, but it's also given us mental health challenges because we've had maladaptive coping strategies to deal with neurodiverse experiences. So if we are going to continue this evolution and get it into the popular culture, and I do like that image of the more we talk about it, the more it becomes part of the culture, which is, I guess, where podcasts like this play a role as well. One of the things that talking more about it is, if you're having the right conversations, is to iron out common misconceptions. Mm -hmm. So where are people misunderstanding neurodiversity at the moment, and how can we change that? Yeah, it really depends where you are on the understanding, you know, if you have neurodiverse family members or friends, and if you are totally uninitiated, then you would get your information from the media or social media. And there are more people talking about it now, but generally people think that neurodiversity means that someone with autism <laughs> and ADHD, dyslexia, as you said, dyspraxia, dyscalculia is another one. We will only know the things that maybe the media has perpetuated. So the misconception around ADHD would be you see someone who's not naughty, hyperactive, and that perception is very much based on the naughty white boy stereotype. And we know that girls and women can present with ADHD very differently, as well as people you know, from different cultures and diverse identities. So I'm from Southeast Asia. And when I was growing up, I read about a boy with ADHD, and I would never in a million years imagine that would be me. But I remember thinking, wow, I so resonate with his experience and I know how he felt, you know, even down to the point of 
being addicted to substances and developing bipolar disorder and having a world that never really fully understood what he's like inside and going down the path of destruction and eventually ending his life. So there is so much out there that shaped the public narrative. And this isn't fully helpful because someone like me who felt from a very early age, I kind of have to develop a swim or sink mentality in school. And so if I didn't swim, I would sink. And that I found out very quickly when I almost failed all of my exams. And that's from being someone who's interested in studying and couldn't actually light up with subjects that I didn't understand. So there is the disruptive misconception also the hyperactivity, which people think we should see as like physical and is obvious, but for girls and women and a lot of adults with ADHD, it's been internalized. It's internalized as hyperactivity in the mind, which can cause anxiety and a lot of mental health problems. And also living with so much trauma can cause self-esteem issues. Also with autism, people think that you can't hold eye contact And we are generally really bad at socializing. That is what people think. But actually, women, autistic women, are able to hold eye contact, maybe for a short time, and until it becomes uncomfortable. And men as well. Autistic men can do that. We're not all, you know, like, what's the name of that? Sheldon. (laughs) (laughs) Sheldon Cooper, yeah. Sheldon, astrophysicist, yeah. We're not all astrophysicists. We're not all little professors. You know, some autistic individuals thrive in creative industries. And these are just the beautiful spectrum of human experiences that maybe we haven't really gone into exploring. Another thing is people do think that autistic individuals are very productive. (laughs) There is, because now we're talking more about strength and then we talk about how given a task that we're interested in, we can focus on it and give like our 200%. While that is true, it can also perpetuate like a toxic stress environment for the autistic ADHD individual who will have to go above and beyond in order to be accepted in the workplace. So they would then do that, but it will lead to burnout and then leaving the workplace. It's just some of the misconceptions. There are a few things that I want to explore deeper there about how, as a leader, if you're working with neurodiverse people on your team or elsewhere, how you can recognize some of those characteristics and traits and how you can work with, accommodate, understand them. Before we do go into that, a couple of other questions first. You touched on the media and you also touched on popular culture, talking about Sheldon in the Big Bang Theory. I remember when we first met, we talked about The Extraordinary Attorney Wu, which is a wonderful series. And there's Atypical as well, which is a lesser known but excellent American series about autistic characters. Obviously, more famously and going further back, you've got Rain Man as well. To what extent do you think these films and television programs have helped our understanding Or do you think that they've played a little bit to a stereotype and moved people away from really understanding neurodivergence? Yeah, so they are quite stereotypical, and especially the earlier ones. And even Sheldon, you know, he is one spectrum of experience. And like his world is very much black or white. And then you see the extraordinary attorney rule, which I love because it's an 
a depiction of what it's like to be an Asian autistic. And within that series, I think the show producers actually depicted four different types of autistic experience. The main character, Wu Yongwu, <laughs> she is very much, you could see that she is autistic. She gets very worried when she goes in front of a revolving door. You know, and that gets me every time as well. Is it going to stop? Can I step in now? And that is so relatable. I love it because I would never choose to go through a revolving door. The way that she repeats herself and she repeats the words that other people tell her, I do that too. But you won't see me as her because I do it in my own way. And I have learned to observe people from a very young age and see how they act so that I can then act that way. So they are very stereotypical and the spectrum of experience is like so wide and you might only know someone's autistic if you live with them because so many of us have learned to hide those differences especially if you diagnose later in life you know you were able to hide them but to detrimental effect because it does impact our mental health and we know that the autistic community has got high prevalence of mental health disorders and that is really sad yeah so let's look at that in a little bit more depth because you've mentioned mental health two or three times now and in this other Southeast Asian character you previously mentioned, obviously that led to suicidal thoughts and so forth. So now that we're in this position in our culture that neurodivergence is better understood, I'm not going to say it's brilliantly understood, but it's better understood than even 10 years ago, how does it help a neurodivergent individual to be able to understand their difference for themselves and to explain it to people are people more open to listening and what's the impact on the neurodivergent individual to be able to have that conversation you see it's interesting that you say that because when i founded adhd girls i thought okay i'm going to focus on this mission to empower women with adhd and neurodivergent women to thrive in employment and then over time, I realized that actually you can't do that if you don't also try and improve society's understanding on neurodiversity, because you can empower the person about the knowledge, you know, about themselves, how their brain works, what's the best way to work. But then you're still going to go into your workplace or you're going to go into your family environment and you still need to coexist among people because in order to thrive, we need people. We can't be on our own. We're, we're not an island. And how well we can communicate also depends on how receptive our environment is. And that's why it's so important that we do neurodiversity training in workplaces so that everyone then understands neurodiversity from a non-stigmatized and depathologized model so we can all learn to work together because research has shown that if we are able to you know, empower our disabled colleagues to do well, then other people would feel that they can do well as well. And another thing is that when we see that our disabled colleagues can ask for adjustments in the workplace and support, then we feel like we can do it too. So then the workplace then becomes a better place to help everyone to thrive. And we don't have an excuse to say that, oh, we're doing this for this person, then we have to do it for you because we are actually doing it for everyone now. Yeah. And that unfortunately was one of the things I was told, not because I was neurodivergent, but because I was pregnant and needing some new arrangement for my work. But yeah, my manager said to me, if we do that for you, we have to then do it for everyone. And that's why I talk about intersectionality, 
Because before I even knew I was neurodivergent, I had already, you know, had some challenges based on who I am as a woman. It's interesting that you use the term disabled colleagues, because I've been very careful in the conversation so far not to refer to neurodiversity as a condition even. So what, you know, from your perspective, and, you know, even within a neurodiverse population, I'm sure there's different opinions on this. But from your perspective, is it a disability? Should it, does it make it better if it is seen as such? Or is it just that diverse way our brains function? Yeah, I love that you picked on that because my understanding has also evolved over time. And I have to say that when I first got into this field, I was very much like, no, I'm not disabled. I am just different, you know, and that's what I said all the time, you know. And then over time, I realized that actually, let's do a poll. Does everyone see the neurodivergence as a disability? So I did that poll and the data showed that actually we only see ourselves as disabled because of the way society is structured. You know, so we would say we're disabled if it's the social model of disability, not the medical model, because, well, whilst, you know, being neurodivergent do come with co-occurring mental and physical challenges, a lot of our challenges are from actually having inaccessible, you know, life systems, work systems. And so we are disabled by society and I'm beginning to embrace disability as a word that's not dirty and disability is something that we all might encounter at some point in our lives you know whether we're disabled mentally physically or disabled by our life circumstances in some ways i was disabled when i became a mom you know who couldn't manage my own mental health and go back to work i was disabled because the system didn't cater for someone like me the policies didn't cover what would happen if a mother comes back to work and wants flexible working or job share. And I was, yeah, pretty much out of the system by then. And I had set up as a self-employed person. And so disablement is probably a better word. Someone actually responded to one, one of my posts to say that. I wonder if an even better word is exclusion, because everything you've said goes to the I in D&I, and you felt not included in many ways. It's an interesting debate, maybe for another podcast, but <laughs> I had to ask, because obviously I've been tiptoeing around what are, what are the right terms, because that's one of the key things. I think we have created a society where language is not necessarily always used for good, even though I understand the reasons why there, people are encouraged to use different language to make people feel more included. But you do end up feeling like you're walking on eggshells sometimes, which isn't necessarily the best thing. So I guess on that, how, other than that use of language, how can neurotypical people and the people who lead them or people who are neurodiverse leaders support their colleagues to help, you talked about it, to help them work with you to bring the best out of you. Let me phrase that better because I think I'm mixing two questions there effectively. Okay. How can we get the best out of neurodiverse people at work? How can we really play to your strengths? Yeah, so I talked about this, okay? The first thing you give neurodivergence or someone who, you know, asks for some adjustments at work, whether it's due to physical or invisible disability, is reasonable adjustments and we tend to then help them do their best work and that is tailoring to their needs and the needs 
are often also around executive functioning. And so these are the things that could help your brain control center, you know, to ensure that you do your job well, whether it's your ability to organize, to delegate, to remember time, and, you know, to kind of work with the rest of the team in a regulated emotional way. And so these are great, but then at the end of the day, right? It is the interest in the job that is going to keep people staying and the sense of belonging that will make people feel like they're part of the team and the safety to be themselves, you know, to contribute ideas to the best versions of themselves, to have someone develop their talents. And so it's important that leaders in the workplace provide an environment where people feel safe to bring their authentic selves at work, maybe not their whole selves, because we might not want to share every single stories of our lives, but to have more of these conversations and facilitate discussions so that we can banish some of the biases and misconceptions like we were talking about and stigma around neurodiversity and open up these conversations so people don't feel othered. Like, because really, when you say neurotypical, okay, these are the people who at the moment don't resonate with being a neurodivergent and it's because our description of neurodiversity movement is so confined at the moment to those with neurodevelopmental conditions but we know that mental health challenges are also considered you know a neurodiverse experience now because we know how many neurodivergents actually develop mental health challenges later in life and so perhaps society is being divided into those who are new labeled and you are not yet labeled. And over time, we're all going to need some form of support, you know, in our lives. And the age in which someone goes and experiences physical disability, the average age for this is 55. You know, I have a, a dad who never had any physical disability and developed Parkinson's later in life. And that happens to other people because of life. You know, no one is untouched by life. And so increase your sense of belonging, promote psychological safety, tailor reasonable adjustments and develop your team. Make them feel valued. If you're in a leadership position and would like to review your own professional relationship strategy, you may be interested in booking a 15 minute call with Andy. Please visit andylapata.com forward slash discovery to find out more. I mean, so much of that is common sense advice for any leader working with any team, neurodiverse or otherwise, giving them a sense of belonging, giving them a sense that their opinion is valued and giving them the platform from which to to share it in a way that's comfortable for them. And there are a lot of questions and comments that come out of of what you said there. So I want to come back to the labeling shortly. But let's say, so for me, from a lot of what you've said, and also from knowing you and the conversations we've had to date, I have other friends who are also neurodivergent and, and having worked with them and seen what they're like or how they respond to different scenarios. One of the things that would jump to my mind if I was leading a team with neurodiverse people is to create different ways for people to contribute in a group setting, in a meeting, for example. So there's some simple rules. Is a typical meeting a very difficult place for neurodiverse people to share their opinions because of the back and forth of ideas, the brainstorming style approach? And how can we work to create a better environment for that? Yeah, you're right. This is completely true because even if we're all in the same room and we're talking about a topic that people might want to contribute, not everyone's going to open up and say, 
maybe we can have different ways of allowing them to contribute, you know, rather than just put your hand up and speak. You know, one of the things that the conference that both of us spoke at, what they did was had Mentimeter, right? I found that was a really nice anonymous way to contribute, right? That was so you could still have your say, but not actually be known because a lot of the time people might not want to disclose or open up and stick up and say, oh, I have dyslexia, I have ADHD, I have autism. But interestingly, when I was giving a talk at a corporate bank, I did ask the room, like, how many of you identify with having a brain difference? You, you might have read something that makes you think you're autistic ADHD, and then so many people yeah. put their hands up. And I know that there's this HR partner who sat right in front and he told me, that was such an interesting question. I was dying to turn around and see, but then he felt like he couldn't because he didn't want to be discriminatory. He was like, yeah. oh, really wanted to know. And he was impressed by that. Like, So I guess the more we embrace this, even if you're not talking, when you just show a show of hands, that makes people feel like, oh, actually, I'm not alone. Right. I mean, what I said I wanted to talk about labels, and this is exactly what I want to talk about because... It, it seems to me that more and more people are being either diagnosed or self-identify as neurodivergent than ever before. Is it a great result of greater awareness? Are we putting labels on something that previously wasn't understood? Are people attributing anything to neurodiversity because it gives them a reason even if they're not necessarily neurodiverse but they're saying oh well I sometimes don't like to speak out at meetings or I sometimes get stressed by that so are people over self-labeling or is something else happening yeah I, I hear you you know this is a conundrum to me as well because you know if you have lived your whole life knowing that you were different and you felt like everything is a struggle and a challenge then you're going to want a name for it whether it's depression or actually, right, still we know that a lot of ADHD autistics, they are misdiagnosed with depression and anxiety to begin with. And actually having the right label to represent your experience gives you the exact support that you need. Because we know that a lot of people who've been medicated with antidepressants and the anxiety medication, it hasn't really fully worked to improve their quality of life as much. So having the right medication or the right support coaching could help you. But I hear you with the need to get a label. I don't think really society is rushing to get it if they don't identify with it, you know, because it is one thing to get a label, but then having to communicate that afterwards. And that is the main challenge for all, every neurodivergent I spoke to. They are like, how do I then advocate for myself? But, but that's why I give the talks that I give and women come and tell me and they feel like there's positivity. Then they can then talk about their neurodiverse experience in a way that's not going to shoot themselves in the foot. You know, because when I came into the field, I was hearing people saying, oh, this is how you go and talk about your ADHD at work. And everything that the advocate for is going to cause that person to go to an employment tribunal. Because <laughs> you can't go to somebody and said, you hire me. I am terrible. You know, this is exactly what I'm like. Because we all have that, don't we? But it's about reframing. We are some of the good and the bad. But really, you know, the bad don't follow me if I am in a good environment. You know, and if I'm supported, it's really how you 
brand yourself, I suppose. <laughs> so if someone does feel that they could be neurodivergent, I guess there's two parts to this question. The first is, how do they find out more and how do they find out what the correct label is, for want of a better term? I was going to go say diagnosis, but then that takes us down the other conversation we yeah. had earlier. So, but how do they determine if there's a condition and if so, what it is? And how can they communicate that at work in a positive, constructive way that enrolls other people to support them and work with them? Yeah, so there are so many ex like, neurodiverse experience, right? But the majority of people actually identify with having ADHD or autism because <laughs> everyone who talks about ADHD and autism are so relatable. And then it makes people go and, you know, look into it. And there is such a spike in diagnosis, but also a bigger spike in the bottleneck in diagnosis. And so it really depends what kind of experience you identify with, you know, if you're looking to get diagnosed, then you could go into, say, the clinical partner's website. There are online quizzes that you can do, but make sure it's rep a reputable one. You know, for the ADHD assessment, you can do a pre-assessment -ass pre rating scale, the, a the ASRS, the ADHD self-rating scale. And you can find that on clinical partner's website. They have some interactive quizzes, multiple choice quizzes, where you can then fill in the 18 questions and then find out if you fulfill the criteria for referral. But then for autism also, there's the AQ10, but it's, <laughs> I've got to say, all these are very gender biased. They don't fully encapsulate the female and, you know, multicultural experience. But, you know, that's what we have at the moment. There are companies who are working on it, but it's still not approved yet. So we're dealing with this, you know, there are multiple choice quizzes that you can do. But I also know companies who have profilers. And whilst I don't know if these, you know, are fully accurate, but these are what, what we have at the moment. Okay. And what about someone who is neurodiverse, being able to talk to their team, talk to their colleagues, talk to their, their leaders, and talk to them in a way that gets those people to work with them to be on their side rather than to present it as an issue they've got to manage. Okay. So, sorry, your, is your question about how they do it or? Yeah. So, so if you're working in a company and you're neurodiverse, mm -hmm. how do you help other people work with you and understand how to do so in an effective way? Yeah. So generally, <laughs> The people who are good at doing that, they're better at communicating. And there are several people who I've come across who are actually really good at, you know, just communicating what, what they need. And it's no coincidence that they are also really good at professional relationships. You know, there are people who are already having a really good rapport with their team members and they might have neurodiverse manager who understands looking into it themselves. So this gives them a better chance to then advocate for themselves and also talk about it, but like always come from a position of strength. I think we all have weaknesses, but if you put that in front of you, that's going to be like the thing that people see when you enter the room. There are disability passports. I won't call it disability passports, but then there are passports that you can, like a one pager that you can write, you know, to educate people on what's the best way to work with you. Because honestly, like even before 
the neurodiversity movement really start to spread. I was in the workplace, I work in corporate, and there are people who come in and they have bad moods in the morning. Maybe it's obvious to leave them alone, but some people might not know that. And I've worked with managers who are really scatty, who really need me to be there in person to have those meetings in real time and being on call at any time which actually doesn't work with our kind of ways of working now because everyone's going hybrid. How do you then communicate to your team what you need? So a one pager is normally what people normally put in in the neuro inclusion program because that helps everyone understand. But that requires you to be open about your diagnosis. And before we can do that, we need a safe space. And that's why I talk about psychological safety. The one thing I really want to pick up on what you said there is talking about it coming from a position of strength rather than weakness, which is something I talk about a lot. We don't ask for help because we're worried about looking weak. Mm -hmm. It's how you position it's up to you whether it comes across as weak or not. If you turn around and say, I've got this problem and it's got to be handled, that doesn't come across well. But if you say, I have different strengths to you, and in order to achieve my full potential and be able to really contribute to the team, this helps. That's not weak at all. So it's that mindset and the positioning of it. Exactly. Yeah. We're dealing with people with different brains and diversity of thought. And we need that because we can't all be like vanilla. Yeah. <laughs> we have to have different flavors in the team yeah. in order for people to work together and complement you know, our strengths and weaknesses to do well. Definitely. So just a little aside on something else you said there, you mentioned about the certain things you can't do when you've got Teams meetings and Zoom and so forth rather than rather than in person. Are there advantages to remote working and remote communication for neurodiverse people? Is it easier? Well, I would say it depends on your personality because that, that's another layer, you know, that we often don't discuss because not yeah. all neurodiverse co colleagues want to do hybrid work. Some of us actually prefer human interaction, but actually, yeah, we want to have the choice, basically. I think that's the main thing, you know, to give people a choice and flexibility that, that, that goes a long way. But yeah, you're right. Being at home, though, allows us to create an environment that suits us you know, and then having the choice to then go in if we then feel like, oh, you know, we'll be more productive in the workplace. But also having a sensory environment that works for autistic ADHD colleagues. It's really important. I mentor a neurodivergent woman who actually enjoys going into the office, but then fears it at the same time because she works in an open plan office, which is a nightmare for all neurodivergence because we all have noise sensitivity, you know, and we need our noise cancellation headphones. Most of us do. And although she said she can still hear people, but you know, she wears the noise cancellation headphones and she had accidentally have meltdowns and, you know, affected how people viewed her. And she then felt really bad after that, you know, because these meltdowns are they are triggered within a second and it's so quick. And then when it's over, you feel like it's, it's left a trail of destruction. And mm. along with that comes shame and it's painful for the person involved. So it's great if companies has breakout rooms, you know, capsules that allows neurodivergent colleagues to have the choice to, you know, then be by themselves if they need to. So I was going to ask you how companies can respond to people who have breakdowns like that, having the ability in the first instance for them to go somewhere and just have that silence and be on their own 
would be the first step, would it? Yeah, but also to take away the shame, I suppose. You know, because I think if we aren't able to advocate for ourselves, if the people around you don't know what, you know, life could be like for you, then when that happens to you, there's almost like a public image that you are dealing with and then the repercussions of that meltdown, then that's why it's important for us to have neurodiversity training in the whole workplace so everyone understands and we're all aware of what it's like. Yeah. You've mentioned ADHD girls a few times and you've talked about particularly the work you do with girls and women to help them to manage this effectively and understand it. You also talked about how a lot of the assessments don't cater for gender differences. So what are the differences between the genders and why in particular have you got, other than being a woman yourself, have you got that that gender focus on the work that you do? Yeah, I really was honestly I didn't know at first when I started a company called ADHD Girls, but I really was trying to figure out what happened to me and then what happened to us as a collective, because I'm a cross-cultural individual. I I wasn't born in this country, but I lived in this country for half of my life. So I wanted to find out what happened. You know, what is the impact of culture? What is the impact of neurodivergence? And then what are the challenges along the way that kind of adds the spice to all of it? And yeah, I I realized that the differences, the gender differences are very much down to socialization. It's the way we've been raised, the norms that we have had to, you know, play to, the rules that were given to us, the unspoken rules and patriarchy, you know, that is invisible, but very much still there and it's quieter now. But yeah, the gender differences also, what I notice is hormonal impact how we see ADHD manifest in men and women. And for women, we often are known to have more emotional dysregulation challenges. In fact, a lot of women with ADHD was disappointed that emotional regulation isn't within the DSM-5 to characterize ADHD because we felt like that is more of a challenge for us because of how ADHD within ADHD, the impact of hormones like estrogen on dopamine in the brain. So we know that dopamine exists at a lower level in the ADHD brain and at different parts of the month, estrogen is lower as well. And so when estrogen goes down, dopamine goes down and that impacts the way we can self-regulate, the way we can do our work. And then what happens then when women enter perimenopause you know, enter periods of large hormonal transitions such as pregnancy and after childbirth. These are the things that have caused women to have mental health challenges, you know, postnatal anxiety, depression. And then the impact of menopause is a devastation. I think in the conference that I spoke at, where you attended and you spoke as well, that was really interesting because talking about the impact of hormones on women and neurodivergent women in the workplace has kick-started this menopause or menopause roundtable. This journalist, you know, has found it so inspiring and she was so fired up after that she created an entire thing, you know, to get all these women together to talk about menopause and then also, you know, invite neurodivergent women to contribute to this conversation. And we know that Spain recently passed the law to say that women can take like three or four days of menstrual leave per month if they feel like they can't get out of bed. So that is something else. 
And yeah, all workplaces need to cater for our challenges. And it does, it makes a lot of sense that when you've got those hormonal differences that do, using the term earlier, they exclude women a lot more than men in many cases. If you then factor into that neurodivergence, inability to communicate, tendency perhaps to stress more, whatever it might be, then that's going to add layers onto it. So that makes a lot of sense. Last thing I want to ask you, you mentioned earlier, you said some neurodiverse people work in the creative industry. I know from conversations over the years with clients of mine that there are some elements of the financial services industry who will actually seek to employ neurodiverse people as analysts, for example. So are there some roles that better suit neurodiverse people and and vice versa, effectively, are neurodiverse people better suited to some roles? Yeah, well, I suppose like... To answer that question, you really have to segment different neurodiverse experience. Yeah. And then we might also be playing into the bit of the stereotype because we might think that, you know, if you're autistic, you might be more data-driven, analytical, you have great memory, and you're good at strategy. Um, but then not everyone's like that because we know that neurodiverse experiences can co-occur. There's an interesting mix when you have someone who's ADHD and autistic because you have this propensity to take risks and want to do something new all the time. But then you also have this need for structure and routine, which the autistic trait can play out in you. And so, yeah, there are generally, you know, some professions that are better for neurodivergence for ADHDers with the typical interest-based nervous system and the need for novelty and being passionate about what they do and the urgency that drives their propensity to work better and the change, you know, that happens. So something that can be very fast moving, something that requires them to work with people, maybe, you know, so a lot of things that are more risk taking. So you mentioned the financial services, a lot of investors are neurodivergence with ADHD, and the traders, people who are on the trading floor in, in the financial industry, they're very much neurodiverse. And people work in pension funds, I also find. <laughs> but then the thing is, even if we have neurodivergence working in these spaces, but because of the norms that are perpetuated in these places, people don't talk about it, you know, because it's such a cutthroat environment. Yeah. And they are also playing to that gender role, like a predominantly male profession. Maybe it is harder for them to open up about stuff like that. But it's very interesting that these sessions inside financial services they are always very well attended <laughs> yeah and imagine from the conversations that i've had sam it's been a fascinating conversation i've got so many more questions i want to ask you we maybe we'll do some other stuff separately around those but it's been a great introduction i said at the beginning that this was a conversation that i've wanted to have for a while i think it is an important topic it is something that's getting more currency we are talking about more and more but that doesn't always mean people understand it better. And I think you've given us those insights today. So thank you very much for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Well, thank you so much, Andy. I think you're doing such great work. I wanted to say more to those things, but then try not to waffle at the same time. So thank you so much for having me. And you're such a good interviewer. Thank you. You didn't waffle, I promise you. <laughs> So thank you so much to Sam for joining me. It, it, definitely no waffle. Lots of insights. Loads more things that I didn't ask Sam. I'm going to ask her if I can maybe look at them for a Psychology Today blog or something else. But I, just a couple of things just to to highlight there. 
Um, I was aware, even as I asked some of those questions, I was aware of part of the answer and Sam backed that up. When I asked about the jobs that people go to and how people handle certain scenarios, we're forgetting the part of the work, the term neurodiversity, the diversity element. And I think one of the key things that came out there is not treating people who are neurodiverse as a mass. It's about understanding that we do, our brains do work differently to each other. I wouldn't class myself as neurodiverse, but I'm sure my brain works differently from someone else who is neurotypical. So there is a range and it's about getting to understand the person ultimately, but having that conversation more normalizing those differences between us in the same way that being left-handed is now normalized means that we can tap into so much more potential in our teams and shouldn't we do be doing that so i really enjoyed that interview well worth waiting for i hope you did as well if you did if you could help me out and go to spotify apple podcasts wherever you listen and give us a five-star review there you go i'll make it nice and easy for you and just give you the number to put down and write something that really helps people find the podcast that would be great this will be our last original interview before the summer break so from next week through august we're going to be enjoying connected leadership gold we're going to share some of the top interviews from the last three years with you so you'll keep getting the podcast in your inbox every month every week but it will be ones from the archive that you may have missed so keep listening to those and we'll be back in september with a host of fantastic new guests and hopefully a nice big piece of news about the connected leadership podcast so have a great summer and i look forward to seeing you then Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership tips.